Welcome back to another episode of Now Hear This Entertainment. This is the eight-year anniversary edition of NHTE with a new episode having been delivered on time every week since February 17th, 2014. My thanks to all the great guests and certainly the worldwide listening audience that has been a part of all this over that time. This is a podcast for fans of the guests who appear on this show, as well as fans of music in general, and a podcast for singers, songwriters, musicians, recording artists, entertainers who want to learn more to help them grow in what they're doing. I'm Bruce Wozniak from Now Hear This Incorporated, which provides management, publicity, and related services. There is a giveaway going on this month only, which I will be sharing details about on this episode. I hope you've been receiving the weekly e-newsletter that I send out every Wednesday. There is information in there about the latest podcast episode, plus other goings-on, including exclusives that only the people who are signed up to that list get to see first. For example, in the newsletter that was emailed on January 5th, I revealed that there would be a giveaway on the podcast during the month of February. If you are not getting those emails, it's quick and easy to sign up. Just go to the show website, nhte.net, and pop in your email address. Joining me today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from Los Angeles, my guest is a multi-Grammy award-winning singer, songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist who spent 28 years as a member of Rock and Roll Hall of Fame band Chicago. He has performed around the world and has a musical career that goes all the way back to a band he formed in 1961. Along the way, he has worked with everyone from Patti LaBelle to Elton John, Donna Summer, Neil Diamond, and Kenny Rogers, among many others. He continues to write, record, and perform, having released a 14-song album last year. You've been hearing a song of his called Livin' for Love. I am thrilled to welcome to Now Hear This Entertainment for the eight-year anniversary episode, Bill Champlin. Hey, what you doing? (laughs) What's what's going on out there in the clean world? (laughs) (laughs) Bill, this is great. Really appreciate you making time. No, anytime, Bruce. I am so, so excited to have you on the show. This is a real thrill for me, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Let's start off first, though, by having you share with the audience about the song of yours that was just playing during the intro called Living for Love. Okay, Living for Love. I was just sitting down watching TV. I think it was kind of right, you know, maybe right around when the when the lockdown started. I was sitting around at home, bored to tears. Picked up a guitar and started playing that, what, what ended up being that song. And I wrote out a couple of lyrics, and I was just getting started on the song, and my wife Tamara came in. She said, what are you, what are you working on? I said, well, I got this thing I'm doing. And the moment, actually, it was almost done. So I kind of played it to her acoustically, just with guitar and vocal. And she went, oh, yeah, there we go. Now we're talking business i think it's time for you to do a solo album and that's what kicked off the whole circus you know what i mean but i i like the song because it kind of says a lot of stuff it uh it it's just it's bluesy i don't do that many blueses i mean one of the few blueses i've ever recorded was in the heat of the night for the tv show <laughs> that was it <laughs> you know so what was it that inspired you to write that in a blues vein then since that's very rare for you 
Probably I was just sitting down playing without a pick and got into kind of a delta kind of mode somehow. And, uh, and I came up with those, those very first chords that, that were also used in the chorus. And I went, wow, these are kind of cool. This is, it's, it's a blue, it's bluesy, but it's not a traditional blues. It goes in, into a few different places and does these kind of cool changes. They're simple and, uh, and really visual more than anything else. And, uh, I just kind of went, wow, I like this. I'm going to take it further. And that's kind of how I wrote Right. If, if something grabs me, if I'm digging something that just sort of comes out when I'm just fooling around, that's where most of the good songs come from is when you're just messing around. And, and you go, wait a minute, oh, this is good. <laughs> <laughs> Am I correct then that it sounds like you're saying that the inspiration came first for just the melody and eventually you came up with the lyrics? Well, I think I came up with the progression okay. first, and I didn't really have a melody. That's usually what happens. I come up with the actual progress, the, the chord progression itself, and then and then I'll just kind of maybe put it on a uh, just you know tape it to a cell phone, you know, record it to a cell phone, yeah. and just kind of sing along with it without being caught up in playing the guitar or piano. Mm. And uh, and that's sort of how a lot of songs come out. It just you sing you sing uh, uh, melodies against a progression that you wrote. And with me, unless a Progression's got something a little different about it. Uh, I usually, you know, if that happened, if it's just a standard stock progression, I usually end up not writing it because I go, "Well, man, that's already been done." Mm. So I try to try to come up with something, at least a, a small surprise on every song that I write, if I can. Mm, I like that. I like that. I, I wish this was a video interview so people could see the smile on my face when you said that. That's <laughs> that's nice to hear because too many musicians do get kind of that muscle memory of where they just do, they just play something and I don't think they stop long enough to say well wait a minute am I just doing this creatively or is it something I've heard before and it just sounds too natural where maybe I should have a second look at it and say is this done commonly and that's why I'm playing this progression you know, one time I was playing the piano and I came across this progression, uh, and and, I, and it was right before Tamara and I were supposed to, we we had a dinner date with with some friends, uh, and I was just just playing the piano while she was putting on her makeup or something, and I hit and I hit on this little chorusy thing, and uh, and it just and it was beautiful, and so well, I mean after dinner I'll go back and I'll go back and find it again. When I got back back from dinner, it was completely gone, mm. and Tamara said, "No, it isn't." She came around the corner, recorded it to her cell phone. Wow! Right when I was writing it, for she's real good at that. She she if she hears me doing something, she'll turn and she'll hit her cell phone right away and sneak around the back side, you know, where where I don't know if she's there, <laughs> and just record it. I, that, otherwise, I mean, yeah, I'm just jamming. All I'm doing is just playing free, just for the heck of it. You yeah, know? yeah, just to have fun. Wonderful. And occasionally something comes out that goes, this this could be a song. Mm. Uh, it's you know, if I'm if I'm getting jazzy and stuff like that's pretty rare. But that song that I was talking about the song called Evermore that I ended up writing, co-writing with Randy Goodrum and we put on a, a CWF record. Al Jarreau was going to record it, but he, he didn't didn't live that long. He, he died somewhere along the way. And, and uh, it's a beautiful song. And, the, you know, like when I brought the chorus over to Randy, he said, God, how about bringing me a Cadillac next time? That's beautiful. <laughs> let's do that. We were on that like white on rice. I mean, that quick. Yeah, let's go. You know writing you know uh, verses and stuff like that so back to living for love since i was too busy talking over it just tell the audience what the message is in that song 
Well, you know, the message is you're kind of looking at yourself uh, a lot of times. A good portion of the album is sort of introspective in a way, you know, without being too self-indulgent. But then that song kind of had a little, like, hey, if you're, if you're just living for financial success or you're living for anything else, uh, it's check it out real close. And if you're not living for love, you're missing something, mm. kind of. Wow, I like it. And that's sort of what, and, and it's, yeah, that's what we, we ended up being the title song of the record. I like it. I like it. But it's the only song that sounds like that on the album. There's a lot of other stuff that's like way different. And I, you know, I, I kind of like to make albums uh, with, you know, as though they were, you know, you got 10 songs, you got 10 different artists. Mm. Wow. <laughs> and most, most A&R guys at record companies would say, no, 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 that's not the way to go. <laughs> but, but, you know, we want you to play, the, we want you to write the same song 12 times and put it on the record. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's less, it's, it's more marketable. If, you, if you're really in, in that little slot, you know, you, make, you select a slot and you get in it. But, but uh, I, I stopped worrying about marketing a good long time ago. I mean, it, it's it's it only ends up getting written and done by me if if it excites me. If, it, if, it, if I go, wow, this I like hearing this back, you know. So I mean, once again, self-indulgent, selfish guy. <laughs> that's the way I sing. That's the way I write. That's the way I play. I play it the way I want to hear it. And, and you know, if people don't like it, well, then there you have it. There's plenty of other music. Yep. There's all kinds yep. of music out there. Yeah, I really kind of do my own thing for myself. Almost every song I've ever written to try to get a single rarely has become a single. The only one that, that I can remember that was really an assignment was uh, was Jay Graydon and Steve Lukather had a had a piece of music that needed it, that needed it, and they were they were writing for George Benson, mm. so I got into it and did you know some of the melodies and all of the lyrics on the song and it turned out to be a Grammy award winning song. It's one of the rare assignment writings that I've that I've done that that actually worked for me. And that song was "Turn Your Love Around," which was a really big hit for George. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Too bad that guy can't play the guitar. <laughs> <you know what laughs> <I mean? laughs> Hey, just watch him. He's going to be good one of these days. <laughs> yeah, if he, you know, son, if you keep practicing, you might be able to make enough to, you know, just on in the tip jar. <laughs> uh, good stuff. We're off to a great start here. Some folks are probably going to ask me, how the heck did you get Bill Champlin as a guest? And some of you that are real audio savvy and either are podcasters or do music are going to ask, how do you get such great quality sound for your show week in and week out? I can tell you that I record with confidence thanks to the unit that I have from a company called Centrance, like the word entrance with a C at the beginning. I'm talking about something that you can and should get also, which is a combination audio interface and portable handheld recorder. It's studio quality and has professional quality preamps. And while it is an all-metal enclosure, it's not a huge heavy piece. If you're just buying something big for your recording console because you think it looks more impressive and are picturing the social media photos you're going to take of it, you're prioritizing aesthetics and not sound quality. What I'm referring to from Centrance is portable, it's bulletproof, it's going to enable you to deliver studio-quality audio to your fans, your audience, Every project, every time. Centrance even makes great headphones that I'm wearing right now and probably should tell you about more often too because the comfort that they provide during the long editing sessions I do for this show is so nice and so important. Centrance has a special offer for my audience. When you use their Mixer Face ad on the show website, nhte.net, 
And that's in the right-hand column on desktop, by the way, or scroll way down on mobile to see their Mixer Face ad. Click through and order directly from Centrance, and when you put in the code BRUCE, they will not only give you free U.S. shipping, but send you a free watertight accessory case to carry the unit in. Bill, you were talking about the song that was playing during the intro. I had mentioned that you released the album last year with, wow, 14 tracks on it. Talk about that project, including some of the folks who you wrote with, who played on it, who sang on it, those types of details. Well, you know, the Japanese version has 16 tracks. <laughs> they, they always, they always like a couple of bonus tracks over your American release. Hmm. And I've done enough business with Japan over the years that I knew that. So I've, I've mixed and mastered two other songs wow. that didn't go on this one. So, you know, the Japanese version is, is 16 tracks. And that's, if that was an album, it, they would sound about very small. <laughs> I mean, it was an LP, you know. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of, I got a lot of friends to come help me out on this. A lot of it I kind of did myself just in terms of laying down the groove, getting either the first keyboard or the first guitar and some drums and a, you know, a, a move bass kind of thing, you know, a, a keyboard bass. And that's kind of what I've, what I've set up and, and do, do the vocals over. And then at some, po- some point of the game, I just replaced drums with real drummers. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, uh, the two songs I sent to you, one was with Alan Hertz on drums and he's worked with, uh, with Michael Landau and he's worked with a lot of different people he's a great recording engineer and mixer also so it's kind of a one-stop shop you go to allen's you get great drums and you know beautifully recorded and and you just stay there and mix it while you're there you know Mm -hmm. he's just got great ears it's amazing amazing music he plays with sons of champlin whenever we play he's a you know he plays with scott henderson plays with mike landau he's he's a bad boy all the way around Mm -hmm. and then i got uh lenny castro to play percussion on it i went you know a lot of stuff could use some hand drums and uh, and you know shakers and tambourine kind of things and mm-hmm. and i just you know called lenny and he said man i'd love to i just brought him a drive and uh, and a little explanation of each song i said what am i do tell lenny castro what drum to play <laughs> on what song i said i just i just let him go you know what i mean here lenny tell me when you're done i'll come pick up the drive you know <laughs> sort of how it worked because he's got a good little recording scene in his own house so i mean there's a lot of people at least in la a lot of people that have this uh had their own recording studios right in the house so we did that and then i and then on uh, on the, another song especially me which i think you're going to probably play later there's kind of a horn section on there and what it is is a baritone sax two tenor saxes and two alto saxes all stacked up on a greg matheson chart and i got mark russo to do it all mark russo plays with doobie brothers mm. he's an amazing a great horn player he played with the sons for a little while here and there whenever he had time and uh he's, he's an unbelievable player he's just outrageous and while i was in that and i wanted to get a little bit of the bay area kind of kind of playing on it so i got mark on this one solo and one of the songs i got tal morris to play a solo on he's ridiculous gary falcone who's who's in who's a member of uh uh, wonderground which is a little band gary and my wife and i sort of put together and we've got the album before my album that was on it was uh it was a little more of a rock thing than, than living for love but i got them i got greg matheson and i wrote three songs together 
there, and Greg played a lot on it. Played a lot of keyboards, a lot of move bass. I got Abel Boreal. Uh, we haven't been doing a lot of sessions lately, but we kind of talked him into doing one song. Not to, not Junior. Abel Boreal Junior plays drums with Paul McCartney, but Abe Senior is is probably one of the best bass players on the earth. Mm. He's just a really and a sweet guy, really good friend. So he, you know, he wasn't he wasn't really feeling that good around that time, but he just went, okay, I'm for Bill, I'm doing it. So he, you know, went into his studio and knocked off a bass part for me. So and I can't I can't try to, you know trying to remember who else was on the record. Of course, Greg Matheson. Oh, we we got Alan Hertz on you know half of the drums. Got a guy named Gordon Campbell on the other half of the drums. And I got Andres Carlson, who's a, a Swedish uh, songwriter and singer, who's an old dear friend of mine. I've, I've known him since he was a busboy at Cafe Opera. Hmm. And then he hooked up with Max Martin and wrote all these, all the most most of the lyrics for Britney Spears and uh, all the wow. stuff that, we, that those guys produce out of there. That's the way it is. He wrote for uh, uh, Celine Dion. He's just an amazingly talented guy. Wow. And I got him on some vocals. And, and I've always just loved him as a singer. He just and he said he's a pal. We just we just we've, I've known him since he was like 18 years old. And and he just about owns Sweden at this point. He's the producer of I think X Factor and Swedish Idol. Idol at, at one point. I don't know what he's still doing it, but mm. uh, he's just you know. But you know I can always talk him into getting on getting in a set of cans and going to the phone. You know, <laughs> going to getting the phones and go to the mic. You know, Andreas, this is what we're doing. Okay, we're in. And he and I co-wrote one of the. <laughs> Uh, he's a, he's an amazing amazing dude. Uh, Michael Caruso and Tamara were working on a song called uh, "Love Has No Heart," which is just a great title just to start with. And uh, and Michael and Tamara had been working on that for a while, and I think I was involved in it as a writer a couple of years back. But they were kind of bringing it back, and I just took it into my Pro Tools rig and threw off a quick one that, that night that they were just finishing up a tune, and they just went, "Oh, that's where we're going with that." So that's on the record. A lot of cool things on the record and the main thing about that record that that I really kind of you know more so than I mean I've always been known for being a little bit uh, uh, you know trying to keep uplifting uh, uplifting lyrics you know mm -hmm. without calling it spiritual because mm -hmm. that just bags it somewhere that's not you know but I, re I don't want to I mean when I when I first started doing uh, doing records and stuff like that I really loved the feel of R&B records but the lyrics were going nowhere they were just kind of stupid Mm. And then you had Bob Dylan. I didn't like the feel of the records, but I loved his lyrics. You know, because I really like black. I was way into black music. I really liked R and B, and I just kind of went, "Why don't you just put good words on R and B grooves?" And that's kind of <laughs> what got me going. It's, it's, you know, and that was when I was—I think that was in the late 1800s when I just started <laughs> making records. You know? <laughs> Somebody said, "Hey, you ever, did you ever record on tape?" <laughs> yeah, I, my first album I recorded on smoke signal. You know? <laughs> well, what an absolutely all-star cast you, you just described that that you put together on on that album and and of course you did mention your wife too that that she sings on there as well Tamara and I co-wrote. I mean, we got uh, we. Oh, actually, we got Bruce Geich sent us a uh, what he calls a colonel that he had in his in his stash. For, he'd been sitting there for years, which was a a track with no song. Hmm. And I just listened to it. I went, "Oh, Tamara heard it. She said, give me that. <laughs> we're on this one. <laughs> we wrote that in in, a, in the time it takes to hear it. We were on that, and it's the opening song on the album. It's called Reason to Believe. And I called up Bruce and I said, Hey, Bruce, who's the drummer on this? He says, Vinnie Colaiuta. I said, Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> 
that pretty much says it all. So I got Vinny, I got Vinny on the record too. So he, I mean, he didn't know it at the time, and he'd cut the track long before there was a record. But you know, you know, once you put them in your little save folder, you can go back and pull them out anytime you want. Yeah, that's right. You know, and that's what happened with Reason to Believe, and it's and it's a, it's such a cool song. It opened the record, and and the rest of the song. I mean, I read somewhere it says if it's not somewhat personal, it's not art. You know, so I went, I went, I went to it. There's one song got a lot of. Uh, oh, another person. Uh, well, I'll go back. There's one one song in there called uh, "Another Lie," that's basically kind of written about a relationship I had with my older son who passed away. Mm. And uh, and it, it, this thing, it, it's, it was like pulling teeth getting this song out of me uh, for this because he he uh, he had cancer. I was I was diagnosed with with aggressive prostate cancer on on Monday, and the next day he died of uh, esophageal cancer. Mm. We don't like the C word at our house. You know what wow. I mean? And uh, so, I mean, we, I just kind of, you know, it's a, it's a tearjerker if you know, if you know what's going on with it. And I just kind of went, this is really personal. Some people said, you sure you want to put this on a record? This is, this is, this is kind of personal. I said, yeah, I do. That's really kind of what it is. Mm-hmm. You know? And there's, there's even, even in the songs that seem like they're just pop songs or R&B, you know, dance things, you, you listen to the, you listen to the, uh, to some of the themes that go through some of these songs. And a lot of it's just about truth. I've heard a lot of lying lately. You know, mm. I just kind of went. I'm tired of this. You know? <laughs> what what happened? To, what happened to truth? That's you know? right about real life. Yeah, not the perception of truth, but truth in in itself. You know, yeah. Yeah. a lot of people say, "Well, the truth is it, truth is only how you see it." No, the perception is how you see mm. it, and that's that's. I don't care. I don't care about that. That's just so. That's just somebody's opinion. And so that's that's kind of where there's kind of an underlying theme in that record that's in there pretty pretty regularly. Okay, okay. <laughs> it just sneaks into my lyrics. That's where I was at that time. In mentioning that your wife was one of the singers on the Living for Love album, your grandparents, your mother, your sisters, all singers, and one of your three children finished third on season five of The Voice. So there's just music all around you. Well, and we have two papillons, little small dogs with the real big ears. Uh, have you ever seen them? You know, they look kind of like little small collies, but their ears are kind of r- real high and real fringy. So I, I would just say, at our house, it's all ears. It's musicians and papillons. <laughs> <laughs> just ears. Everywhere you look, there's ears looking at you. You know what I mean? And it's kind of the way it works. I mentioned in the intro that you are a singer, songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist. And sometimes I ask a guest to rank the order of what they consider themselves to be first, second, and third. But for someone who has won two Grammy Awards for songs you did with and for other people, I would have to think that you must think of yourself as a songwriter first. Is is that right or not necessarily? No, I'd be singer probably. I think it probably comes in most natural to me. I'm as an instrumentalist, I'm probably primarily known as a Hammond organ player. But I play a lot of guitar. On the album, there's a lot of guitar. I'm, I'm, I, I really love playing rhythm guitar, and I kind of learned from listening to the best, you know, Steve Cropper, uh, and then all the new guys. Steve Cropper from Booker T and the MGs. He did all the rhythm parts on all the uh, all the Sam and Dave records and Albert King records and all of the other things. And Steve is, is just a, it was a genius at, at at coming up with the perfect ignorant parts. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> 
parts that anybody could play, but only he would think of to put them there. Mm. That's what that's what's so that's what's so great about Steve. And I always kind of patted myself after his his guitar playing. But and then and then you know I paid close attention to Booker on organ too. He's a great organ player. Simplifies everything, you know. And of course I of course I listened to Jimmy Smith and Jack McGuff and all of, all of the major Hammond guys. Yeah. I don't play as good as any of them. That's <laughs> damn sure, you know. But I I, I, I can comp for days, you know. I can back up a soloist for days. And I, you know, I even got one one song on the solo. Oh, by the way, I, I did one duet on the record with Jason Sheff, who was in uh. Chicago with me for uh, twenty, I think twenty five of the twenty eight years I was in the band. Yeah. So it's, yeah, Jason and I had written a song. At one point, I went, "Hey, I know we're holding this for something else, but something else isn't here right now. Do you mm. mind if I put it on my record?" He said, "Yeah, go for it." So I, you know, we we had him come back in, sing a few other things, had a burger, and and it was fun. He's always a fun hang hang with. He's out doing this Beatle uh, Beatle shows right now. I think that the overwhelming majority of us would think of you as a singer first. And I think I was tempted to ask that question the way that I did, because you did win the two Grammy awards for songwriting. But I think that your singing voice is fantastic. I think your speaking voice is fantastic. I'm going to be surprised if you don't end up starting a podcast of your own after the two of us get through and please call me for help with that. Yeah, I've been told by that, and I'll also, you know, I've got a number for a voiceover guy, and I just have yet to call him. I mean, I was waiting until Christmas was over, or until New Year's was over, because the industry in general goes into alpha state in December. You know what I mean? Yeah. It always has. Yeah. You know, it's just you kind of come on, and, and he's out shopping. <laughs> you got a family of four. You got to be out shopping. You know? <laughs> I want to just quickly mention the two songs that you did win Grammy Awards for because the audience, by all means, should absolutely know both of these songs. I know I certainly love both of them. First was After the Love is Gone, which was recorded by Earth, Wind, and Fire, and then a year later was Turn Your Love Around by George Benson. What memories do you have of writing those two songs and, and winning Grammys for them both? Well, after the love, we were just finishing my first solo album with David Foster producing, and Foster and Graydon were real partners. They'd co-written a lot of stuff and played played on a lot of, on a lot of my record, the single album. And David said, "Hey, we got a song. I think we might have you, you got a ballad on there. I think we might have beat it." And he was always looking for one thing at the end, you know, at the end of the project. Oh, the record's done. No, there's one more. Mm. He did it. He did it with Chicago 16. He, him and Peter came up with "Hard to Say I'm Sorry," and then. They, they put that on the record. Wow. Something else went off, but they put that on the record, and kaboom, next wow. the rest is history. So he said, "I think I got one of those for you." And uh, so he didn't have the. They didn't. He had all he had as, as a melody and lyric was after the love has gone, right? That was the melody. He had all the rest of it. I, I did all the rest of the melodies, but I remember he said, "And the chord progression is brilliant. That's what keeping. That's what keeps that song as alive as it was when, when it was first written. People still love." that thing yeah uh and he, he said i said well put it on a cassette this is how old that was we were in cassette world in that day i said put it on a cassette and i'll take it home i'll write the lyrics he says no i got to teach you the piano part it took me longer to learn the piano part than it did to write the lyrics and melodies wow <laughs> yeah. 
and he's uh, you know and and we we did it and while we were while we we cut a we cut a demo on it and it wasn't all that great i didn't really pull it off that well hmm. we were just well you know, since it was a demo i wasn't digging in real deep then we cut we i think we got the wrong drummer for that song great drummer but it was the wrong one for that song hmm. and at some point david was playing was working as a piano player just as a sideman on a earth wind and fire record and while they were rolling the tape back you know for it to get another take he just sat at the piano and just started tinkling away and playing it and the next thing you know the more he's white is standing there going what is that mm. and he says oh it's a tune I'm, uh, I'm writing with Bill and, and Jay for Bill's album want to hear a cassette he says yeah so they stop the session he goes and he plays with the cassette he turns to, to Davey and says if Bill will agree to not release this I'll, I'll cut it for this next Earth Wind and Fire record wow wow so it's just one of those you know I mean I think the, the biggest things that happen to people you usually tend to stumble into you know yeah. it just happens that way yeah now David happened to be in New York City when the when Earth Wind and Fire's record was done it was about to be released and I think they had Boogie Wonderland out as a single and David was was in he was producing a Hall and Oates record along the Red Ledge and he was in New York so every you know their session started at one in the afternoon and he he went over in the morning to the CBS building and just knocked on doors and said release this as a single I guarantee it's going to fly mm. and they said no it's just it's a dance it's a dance band we're not you know that's not a ballad band release a song and you'll see so they I think they finally released it just to get David out of their face <laughs> and it just went it went through the roof you know the thing turned into a giant amazing hit. but probably today it's still the biggest one of the biggest records that they've ever had yeah and we're talking about Earth on Fire. I mean, that's a, you know, this should be on a government grant. I mean, that's some great music came down <laughs> with those guys over a period of years. So I agreed to not do it. And then Morty said, and there's two uh, two or three other songs on there I'd like to do. Same deal, a bill of, you know. And I, I said, no, I'm going to keep those. Wow. <laughs> well, I've been kicking myself for that one for a long time. Because <laughs> David, David and I could have written, we could have written three more songs right away. Bam. And it just ended up working that way. So it was it, it was just one of those things. Yeah. And turn your love around? Turn your love around, Jay. And uh, actually, Jay Graydon had, had written pretty much the bass line on it and got Steve Lukather, the guitar player from Toto. Yeah. And Steve got on the piano. And he's also a great, he's just a great musician, good drummer, good piano player, good, great guitar player, one of the best in the world, good singer. And uh, and they started coming up with the melodies. Uh, they came up with pretty much of the melodies for Turn Your Love Around. I, I came up with the, they had the bridge changes, and I came up with the melodies for that. But, uh, Jay said, hey, this is for George. They're going to do a, a greatest hits record, but they're going to need two new songs. Mm. And, uh, and and there was that one. And so I went, I, we, we went in with the, the girls I was using at the time, uh, Carmen Twilley and Bennett Gloud. We did backgrounds, and it wasn't quite killing it. I needed it to go, be a certain way. Mm. So I went, in and, I went in on the record and stacked my own backgrounds wow. for a good portion of the song. We left some of the stuff that, that, that we did, but that turning your love around. That's that was just sort of me stacking up, you know, hmm. tenor, alto, and soprano. Wow, wow! So that was really that was really a fun thing. That ended up that ended up being a cool thing, and uh, it was uh, it, 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 luckily. Now here's here's a weird one. We're talking about December just being kind of dead. Yeah. There's a there's a point on radio where it goes into the, what they call the Christmas freeze, where whatever numbers you have when the freeze comes, you get two more weeks. 
right? Because all the jock, disc jockeys are taking a break, yeah. everybody's off, uh, you know, nothing's really going on. So they just leave the charts the way they are for two weeks. We happened to be at number one when they got the Christmas freeze. Wow. And, and I went, well, that should happen every time. That's like a perfect storm. So, I mean, at it, some point of the game down there, I was just, and, and believe me, I never, I never really take credit for any of it. I just think I was just, you know, because I've been writing good songs all for years, and and some of them get heard, some of them don't. Yeah. These two were really kind of, kind of really wired in, and it was really cool. And I was just very time wise and everything else. I was just fortunate, and I'm so grateful for that time. It was just great for well, me. Well, I wonder if someone would have told you back when you were writing those songs, winning those Grammys in 1979 and 1980. If someone would have told you back then that in the year 2022 you would still be writing, recording, and performing music, what would your reaction have been back then? No surprise. You know, I've been I've been writing and doing this stuff since I was 14. I don't know how to do anything else. Mm. You know, I, there's 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 three things I do well: music. Changing the channel on the television set and dishes. That's it. You know, other than that, that you know, I, at my house I do the dishes. It's as simple as that. If, I mean, if I if I try to cook, I burn water. I burn water when I'm boiling it. You know what I mean? Not a not a not a chef by any means. And nobody's paying anybody to change channels. And dishwashing doesn't pay too well, so you might as well stick with music, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's kind of, well, I do the other ones just because I'm there. <laughs> it's pretty funny. I mean, when Tamara and I, Tamara and I just had our had our 40th anniversary. We've been married for over 40 years. And and we just, uh, when we first started living together and stuff, I just one day I said, hey, you know, maybe we should eat at home. Uh, we've been going to a lot of restaurants. It's just getting a little expensive. You know, let's, let's maybe try eating at the house. She said, I love to cook. I just don't like to clean up. And I said, Hey, I'll clean up. There you go. Uh, she said, "Okay," and you know, I I meant that night. <laughs> <laughs> so I, mean, I didn't realize it was a, I was taking on a lifetime gig. But, you know, it's fine. Everything's fine. We 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 have a ball. We laughing all the time. That's great. That's great. I am joined today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from Los Angeles by singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist Bill Champlin. Visit his official website at BillChamplin.com. I will put a link to it on the show page for this episode at NHTE.net. Lots to see once you land there, including links to find Bill on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. You heard him talking about Living for Love, the album he released last year. On his website, click where it says Shop, so you can order that and other CDs and other merchandise. Plus, his music, of course, is available digitally from the likes of Apple Music and Spotify, the latter having close to 65,000 monthly listeners. Follow Bill online so you can also see where and when you can go see him perform live. Here is the giveaway that's going on this month only. This is running throughout February, but don't delay in entering because the period will end at midnight Eastern time on February 28th. So once the clock turns over to March 1st, you've missed out. I am going to give one person access to my online class at interviewtipscourse.com, absolutely free. Here is how you enter. Send an email to podcast at nhte.net and tell me who you are, what you do, and why the interview tips course would be helpful to you. It does not have to be the story of your life. It doesn't have to be something that goes on and on and on, but you need to include that information so that I know that this is really something you want because it's going to help you professionally. If you just send me a blank email or a message that says hi or contest or I want to win, 
no, you're not going to be eligible. I will do a random drawing from all qualified entries, and one winner will be given access to interviewtipscourse.com absolutely free. Send your entry via email, as I described, to podcast at nhte.net. Bill, back in 1986, you did a song with Patti LaBelle called The Last Unbroken Heart. Casual music listeners might not be aware that a song gets recorded in different parts, meaning vocals, the different instruments, and so on. Where I'm going with this is, not only am I curious as to whether you and Patti were in the studio together for the recording of that song, but moreover, when a duet is recorded and the two singers are not together, what happens when the first opportunity comes to perform the song together live somewhere? I'm, I'm thinking you're going to say that that's where rehearsals become so important, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. Plus, like I said, what was the case with the recording of The Last Unbroken Heart? Well, the song was written. Uh, Jay Graydon was going to do the song. Uh, Jay Graydon was producing it. And uh, Jay and I are old pals. We've done a lot of work together. He said, hey, you want to do this duet with Patty? I said, yeah. So uh, he said, I'm going to put you on first. So I went and did my parts. We, we kind of tweaked the song while we were at it a little bit. And I, I did my parts. And then later on, I was, I was I think I was on the road with Chicago at the time. And Patty came in, and she did her parts. I met Patty three years after we did the record. Wow. And the same thing happened with Michael McDonald and, and Patty. Um, they didn't know each other when they did the record. When they did uh, On My Own. Yeah. On My Own. That, that thing was a really cool record. Patty can sing Time News and Weather and make it work. It's just amazing. <laughs> great. You know, and I finally met her. I finally met her in, in Dearborn. I mean, her bus was about to leave, and our bus was just pulling in. And uh. her road manager had been my road manager. I was up in my my room up at the hotel, and and all of a sudden, it was uh, it was Marty Hom. Actually, Marty called and said, "Hey, a friend of mine's downstairs wants to meet you." I said, "Who's that?" He's Patty Labelle. I said, "Look behind you. I'm standing there." <laughs> That's how fast I got downstairs. You know. And she she was cool. We went and hung out on her bus. She's an amazingly great Italian chef, Italian cook. Well, I went down and had one of the best lasagnas I've ever had in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and she's a sweetie pie. She's a wonderful woman. Uh, just just love her to death. So is it what I said in that it just boils down to rehearsals when, when a situation like that comes where you did not record together and all of a sudden somebody has an opportunity for the song to be performed live? We, it, that never came up, you know. If, and if it did, if it did with her, she did it with somebody in her band or with somebody else. But I, I never performed live with with her. Mm -hmm. I did a show many, many years later in St. Lucia that she was on, but uh, it was long after that. See, that that song went on the Miami Vice Two album. So, in the words of Get of Maxwell Smart, missed it by that much. <laughs> <laughs> Miami Vice Two just didn't fly. Well, the first Miami Vice record was, you know, Jan, John Hammer was did, did a lot of the music on it. It was a really good album. And, uh, you know, Glenn Fry had a couple things on it. It was a really great record and uh, and went through the roof. But the, the second one, by that time, Miami Vice, they, 
they made a mistake. They thought they were so big that they could go up against Dallas. <laughs> and uh, the second year they were on, they went up against Dallas, and Dallas, of course, trounced them because you know that was it. It's like trying to do a, a brand new, uh, you know, a brand new sitcom up against Cheers about seven years in. Yeah. No way, ain't gonna work. Or Friends. Yeah. You know, so it was a, it was a mistake, and a kind of that mis- you know the the uh, the karma from that mistake just went downhill, floated downhill, and uh, and the record didn't do very well. You know, the, the Miami Vice too. Yeah. Stuff on their record, but uh, on that album. But I th- and I thought that song was great. Tamara and I still perform it when we do it uh, when we do ah. gigs, little live gigs. Okay. Okay. That's a that's a bitch to play and sing at the same time. Is it? <laughs> that's, a, that's a bear to play and sing. I'll tell you that. Wow. Wow. Well, in an effort to try to find a teaching moment, I have to wonder, you surely get asked for advice all the time, especially from people trying to break into the music business. I wonder if your answer has changed over time as the industry has evolved, but also what is the one big piece of advice or the two big pieces of advice that you give nowadays to aspiring performers? Well, and I think the same thing, the same advice holds true for actors or anybody in the entertainment field. Learn how how to to handle rejection because you're going to get a lot of it. Mm. You know, I still get it. There was was a meeting of of really big songwriters in Los Angeles. They wanted to try to start a songwriters union. Allie Willis was kind of putting it together. And, and, you know, there was, I was sitting in a room. I just went to it just because I was invited. And I'm like, okay. I looked around. There's just nothing but badasses in that room. I'm all great writers. I was sitting next to Jeff Barry, I think. It was crazy. Uh, all really, really good writers from, from, from back in the Tin Pan Alley days right up to where we were. And at that time, I had a, a, a Turn Your Love Around was like in the top five. Mm. And so I was at the meeting and then somebody said, hey, you know, we're, we're not, you know, we're well, we're well-known writers we're, and we're all really good at the art. And, uh, and we're not just, uh, uh, what was the word she used? Uh, we're not just dummies on the street. And I said, and I raised my hand and said, Allie, the minute we're out of the top 10, we're back to being dummies on the street. Mm. So if one thing you got to know is you got you to gotta remember that, you know, you might be hot for a minute, but you got you know, how are you going to handle it when it isn't that way? Wow. You know, I mean, I, I saw, I saw a lot of big audiences for a long time with Chicago and it was all fine and dandy. And, and, uh, and then, you know, I don't anymore. It's as simple as that. And that's, you've got to get used to that. That's what happens. Okay. Even Chicago was like, you know, had moments where they were, they were playing for 20,000 people and other moments they were playing for 2000. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at some point of the game, you, I think you've got to find something in it that doesn't demand, acceptance to keep you going mm. you know if you depend on acceptance you know on on you know continued acceptance for your singing or playing or acting or, or whatever it is you're doing whether it's poetry whatever art you're you're doing expect to be to be dissed yeah a, a lot it just happens mm-hmm. where it is people if people don't know you they generally don't like you right off the bat mm. It's it's just the way it's human nature is really really weird. But I mean it's like say for instance I mean there's another thing I notice about human nature. I mean I used to work a lot around town and I was high as a kite, you know, and it was 
was really obvious to to the producers and everybody else that I was cranking like crazy. I was still doing good work, but uh, you know that's that's who they were dealing with, right? Mm-hmm. Was a kind of you know drinker, cocaine guy, and cigarette smoker, the whole nine yards, right? I was in in that space, and I see some of those people now, and it's been thirty six years since my last drink. You know what I mean? Mm. And they see me, they see a completely different guy, but they pull out a snapshot of the guy they knew, and they're and they're talking to the snapshot. They aren't wow. talking to you. Wow. And it's just and it's human nature. It's just you know I do it to people, people do it to me. It's just the way it goes. And it's you know there's you you got to understand that uh, you know it's it's really really rare that a real second chance is given anybody. Mm. So you know kind of be be a little bit careful. You know I mean uh, you know know what you know what you want. Go for it, but don't don't you know don't get in uh, in major scenes with people and whatever you do don't don't burn anybody because believe me it'll come back on you. Mm-hmm. I mean karma's very real. You know yeah. I, yeah. I try to make nice noises. I mean even if I don't particularly dig somebody, I really try to make nice noises. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and if so if you get into any industry of any kind, you know keep remember nice noises. <laughs> it doesn't mean you have to. You know, and there's sometimes where I mean, like Andreas told me one time, so that, you know, some, there's a lot of power in the word no. You know what I mean? Yeah. Somebody asking you to do something that you kind of don't feel good about, just say no. You know, yeah. I'm sorry, I just you know, there's other people you get that kind of thing. So I, that's not really a, a so much a, a career advice as it is just life. Yeah, that's right. This is all really powerful stuff. Yeah, it's it's one point my son was going, well, you know, I want to really get a manager. I want to get one of these new managers. You know, the, the, the new guy's got a whole other thing going on. I says, well, let me let me think, let me ask you a question. The new guys, you know, what do they do as management? They they represent you to other people. So that's people talking to people. So how new is that? <laughs> going on forever. There ain't a there ain't a difference. There ain't that much difference between an agent in 2022 than. A an agent in 1922. Mm. You know, it's a guy, it's a guy trying to sell an artist. But that brings up an interesting point, though, which is that three weeks ago on episode 416, Zach Greenberg, who recently left his position as senior editor of media and entertainment at Forbes, he talked about vinyl having outsold CDs in 2021. But I made the comment that streaming certainly is not going away. So, Bill, as someone who has been in music for six decades and watched such a huge transformation in the industry, including artists recording themselves instead of going to a studio, what are your thoughts on the evolution that you've witnessed and how unrecognizable a lot of this must seem from when you first started out in the 1960s? Well, streaming... Uh, it really is. It's it's the next generation of Napster. You know, you, except you pay a certain amount of money, but you, the, the musicians aren't really getting paid very much. You know, I, I remember I think Pandora or something. They had uh, Lady Antebellum had a giant record that had some forty something million streams. And this is a, this is what I heard. I don't. I, you know, I didn't. I wasn't looking at numbers, but I heard something along that line. And uh, that same week. After they were the, the three writers were receiving two thousand dollars each, mm. and the CEO of Pandora at the time was in Washington trying to cut that by eighty five percent. Wow! 
So what's going on, at, at least in terms of streaming and all that, it's the, the, the musicians ain't making much money on it. You know, so if you're making records, you're not doing it for the same reason we did even 20 years ago. Mm. 20 years ago, it was about commerce. It was about Tower Records, Liquid Pizza, Warehouse Chain. All of that stuff was, was part of the whole infrastructure of the music business. And it was there was there was money everywhere. It was all over the place. Mm. And it isn't that way anymore. You know, I mean, I, I remember, I, I think Chicago did a, a video once where the budget was $385,000. Wow. I can make 10 full albums for $385,000. Yeah, yeah. Easily, without even thinking about it. Uh, so, I mean, nobody's nobody's budgets are is what they used to be. You're not going to make a killing in it, even if you own all the publishing, even if, you know, you might get lucky and, and have your song turn into a commercial on television. And if it's on the four stations, you know, ABC, CBS, NBC, and Fox, big networks, then you've got a chance of making some money. You know, or if it's a commercial or something. But in terms of selling selling records, I mean, with the streaming, the records aren't selling that well. I know with my album, I I, I really made a good a good cover on it. And if you want the CD, I I do a mail order thing at my house. I mean, Tamara and I just do a mail order on it. Imagine Records does they want they didn't want to do that and they just wanted to do the digital, mm. iTunes and all that. They wanted to take care of that side of the coin, which I said fine. But let me do the other part. He said, yeah, they, they, we'll, we'll kind of go in tandem. Yeah, and uh, and so, I mean, I, I made just barely enough to break even. Well, but, you know, you made reference earlier in the conversation to an A&R person, and even that's not so much a thing anymore from the days that you used to see where people would be chasing record deals like crazy, and everything was all about finding a major label to get the attention of, and that's not even really the focus anymore so much. Well, I think that if you get right down to it, labels are really just there to make you a star. I mean, somebody told me, I think Jay Graydon told me about 10, 15 years ago, he says, if you can sell 25,000 copies of your album, a major label can take that and turn it into something. They can't sell 10 records off right off right out of the gate. You got to do it. So more and more of the onus of, of of success on your records is yourself. How much can you do? I know this kid is a really good singer. He's really made some great music and stuff like that. But he's not real good at uh, at, at at getting a, a lot of hits on his social media. And a big label said, "I love his music. His social." media is useless forget it we can't sign them mm. so you got to bring basically if you want to get on a major label you got to bring a couple hundred thousand people on your own yeah yeah dirty loops did that with, with youtube they, they put they did uh you know, it was a great band out of out of sweden amazing trio one of the best singers and piano players i've ever heard bass player drummer of doom those I mean, it's just three guys and they they started putting out uh youtubes of songs and they 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 did these real jazz ball uh, uh, mock-ups of Britney Spears tunes and Justin Bieber songs. Mm. So they got a lot of they got a lot of attention coming out the bat. The next thing you know, they had three or four million hits. Wow! Wow! On YouTube, they were making, they were making some money. I mean, you get up at that level, it's a different story. But if you're not at that level, you're not you're not really going to be making any money. So if if, if money is if what you're looking for to get into the music business, this is to I mean, this is a message to anybody else. 
else, think twice. Because mm -hmm. it probably won't happen. If you're putting out, if any artist is putting out albums at this point of the game, it's for one reason, because they damn well love it. There you go. There you go. Well it. said. Well and said. That's why I, that's why I do music, is that I love it. And if, if something happens with it, great. Uh, I, I know, uh, you know, I, I'm, on this one, I kind of did okay. I didn't do great, I, but I, I kind of made the money back that I spent making it. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I sort of came close to breaking even, and and the work it's you know the work's its own reward at some level. Yeah. Uh, never let a club owner tell you that. And for years, it looks like <laughs> looks like you're just in it for the fun. You're about to get lowballed <laughs> if you're hearing that from a from a club owner or a, or a concert promoter. Hey, aren't you just in it for the fun? Yeah. So let me get, you can have the fun and I'll take the money. There you go, I got you. <laughs> I want to give a clarification. Earlier on, audience, a couple times you heard Bill just say the word sons. And what he's referring to is in 1967, Bill, you formed the Sons of Champlin. Seven albums and 10 years later, they disbanded, but then reunited in 1997. And now to this day, they are, for all intents and purposes, still together and doing live shows. Yes. Yeah, well, we're, we're looking at possibly doing a couple shows, uh, a couple shows in Marin, Marin County, which is the, the next county north of San Francisco across the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, and that's sort of where we grew up, and it's sort of where our, our uh, strong points are. And people, there's a certain level of people there, including a lot of young people, believe it or not, who are aware of the Suns and they know about them. And if and we don't play that often, so when we do, usually people trot out to see it, you know, to be there for it, because you know I just kind of turned into a into a just a party you know we're gonna have fun you know that doesn't mean we're that we've that it's gonna be parrot heads or anything like that we're, it's just there's a you know there's people that know our, our music and love it and it's a reaffirmation of what it is you know what of what of what that was about you know i mean that stuff we wrote all that stuff right in the middle of the psychedelic uh, revolution mm. and we were kind of Lyrically, I mean, stuff I was writing in those days, lyrically, it was kind of part and parcel of that whole revolution. So a lot of people really connected, you know, on a very high level with what we were doing. Yeah. So when we still see those people, you know, That's I mean, there's a lot of them have died over the years. I mean, it's just the nature of it. But sure. uh, we still do it every once in a while. It's just, just, uh, it's just kind of heartening to, to see our friends, our really good friends like that at, at that level. We're not trying to take the world by storm. I mean, we yeah. we miss our, we definitely miss those. Up. You know, I always say the Suns, uh, we're always, you know, we're always, anytime opportunity knocked, we answered the phone. <laughs> <laughs> we just did, I mean, we were, re, I can tell you, we were smoking so much dope, we didn't, we just thought the world would be the path to our door. <laughs> we were wrong. <laughs> right around 1977, I just kind of gave it up and moved to L.A., had a record deal, had run into, you know, the, one of the Suns albums I did, uh, David Foster, was the string arranger on the record and then david and i became pretty good friends so um, even while i was still with the sons up there at north he was doing some projects and, and flying me in to sing to do some vocal stuff on it so when i came to la i had a record deal and we were talking about producers i said how about david foster they mm. said no no he's just a piano player i said no 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 <laughs> you haven't seen him on a session i said that's you know he's an arranger how could he be a a, a producer mm. well let's see the last time that happened uh, Leslie Gore needed a producer. She 
use her arranger as a producer, and it's my party, and I'll cry if I want to. Wow. Came out, wow. and that arranger was Quincy Jones. Mm. You know, some guy said, "Oh, David Foster will never be a good producer." I said, "You're wrong. <laughs> You're big." Time. Wow. I mean, I, I I got good eyes and good ears. When I you know when I started hanging out with him, I went, "Holy shit, this is a whole other thing." This no guy's, you know, this is a whole other move. No doubt. Plus, I was hanging out with all the Toto guys and all the rest of the guys. There, there was a real explosion of, I guess you'd call it West Coast music in uh, in L.A. There's Bob Skaggs, Earth, Wind & Fire, Seeley Dan, uh, Toto. There was a lot of good stuff going on. And I kind of fell right into the middle of it. Outstanding. Another another real fortunate. It was it was just it was just you know good fortune. It wasn't anything that I made happen. It's something yeah. I tripped into. Yeah. I stumbled into. It, you know. <laughs> and uh, and like I say, some of the best things that can happen to you are uh, maybe a mistake. So don't don't throw things out if you didn't do them quite the way you wanted to. Because you, in there somewhere might be what you need next. That's right. That's right. Well, we're in the home stretch here, and I can't do this interview and not ask you for a career highlight or two, especially given the long, long list of names of people that you've worked with over the years, all the touring that you've done, the great memories that you've been a part of. Is there a, a fun, a nice story that you can share with us before we get ready to wrap up? And I know it's hard to pick one out of <laughs> out of the long career that you've had. Well, I, I can pick two right off right off the bat. Grammys, <laughs> and then and then with Chicago, with Chicago, we got uh, most popular instrument, most popular band, uh, American Music Award, and uh, you know, a lot of those things are really good. I mean, there was one point we Chicago played a gig, uh, the We the People Festival in Philadelphia, and there was about five hundred thousand people. Mm. Time speakers all the way all the way into town. You know that area. Where, where the, in the Rocky movie, yeah. Sylvester Stallone runs up these steps, yeah. gets to the top, and then jumps up and down. Well, at the bottom of those steps is a big scaffolding stage, and we did the show. Wow. And everybody's going, man, this is, gonna, this is a great moment. This is a great moment. Now, for me, Grover Washington was, was opening for us, and I said to the guys, hey, guys, we got one tune with a, with a, with a sax solo. Can we maybe get, maybe Walt take a break on it and, and Grover sit in with us? And I said, that'd be great. So I had Grover standing next to me playing mm. so everybody was knocked out that we were playing for 500,000 people I'm knocked out that I'm jamming with Grover Washington <laughs> Jr. <laughs> that kind of shows you the, the, the difference you know wow, wow. It's, it's like that movie uh, that movie my favorite year I mean there was 500,000 people that was a pretty big show mm. uh, it was a big audience but at, at some point in the game it, it was like for me it was hey man we jam I jam with Grover Washington how about that <laughs> I, I loved it. Wow. How cool is that? So, there's a lot of rock star stuff that I don't really pay too much attention to. People go, hey, you should have been in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I said, nah, I, don't, I don't care. You know, uh, a, a lot of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is they're getting they're getting awards for uh, a really good marketing campaign 25 years earlier. Mm. You know, not necessarily not necessarily the music, but the the image. You know, a lot of times. So I don't I don't pay a whole lot of attention to it. You know what I mean? Okay. Okay. And I'm happy those guys got those guys got in a couple of years ago. Uh, Chicago did, and they deserve it. It's great. I'm I'm happy for them. They they don't they did, they only did the uh, uh, they only gave the award to the uh, the founding members of the band. Ah, I see. So, okay. 
Yeah. I mean, the year before they did Kiss, and, and they had they had Ace Frehley instead of Tommy Thayer, and Thayer's been with the band for what, over 20 years. Mm. You know, and Tommy's a sweet guy. I love him. That's a great guy. We're going to close today with another song from the album that Bill put out last year, a track called Especially Me. Before I let you go and I play that song, Bill, share with the audience all about this one, if you would, please. Well, this is when I when I decided to do the album, and I and I just gotten this song from Bruce Geist, uh, uh, what was it called? Uh, a reason to believe. Uh, and, I, and I called up my my good friend Greg Matheson, who lives in Palm Springs now, and I said, "Dude, I got a record going. I need a couple of toe tappers, you know." And so he sent me some tracks. I wrote them, and we started cutting them, and it was it was going on. It was really making some sense. So what I did was. Uh, I, Greg sent me a track that was funkier than a three-day old Band-Aid, just digging in like crazy. And I wrote the lyrics on it right away. And it's you know on that one I wasn't necessarily shooting for anything deep. I was just going like, well, it's, you know, the lyrics came out. But there's a there's a theme in it if you look at it, you listen to them close. Mm-hmm. But it, more than anything, and then that's one of the one where we got. I wanted horns, and I was looking at horn sections, and there was a lot of COVID, and I don't want to go to studios and da 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 da. Right? Mm-hmm. Or we can do it on Zoom, so on and so forth. And I finally went, you know, this is it's not the way I like to produce records. I can't do it this way. So I just called uh, Mark Russo, who's the uh, he plays sax with Doobie Brothers, and was with the original uh, uh, Yellow Jackets years ago. He's an amazingly great sax player, an amazingly great musician, and a really good friend. I called him and said, Hey, can you do this? I sent him a, 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 you know, just an MP3 of it, of a rough, and he said, Oh, in a minute. So Greg wrote up a chart. We sent it up, and he just put down baritone sax, two tenor saxes, and two alto saxes, mm. and on Greg's chart, and threw the threw the horns on it. And he's just a monster. Wow. You know, I'm absolutely monster. And I stacked, I stacked all, all, almost all the vocals. Tamara's on on a good portion of it. Tamara sang and co-wrote a good portion of that record. She's an amazingly great writer. Uh, Greg Matheson is a partner. I'll I'll never have a partner like that in in songwriting ever again. Is as good as him. Mm. He's, he's an amazing, great player. He's been on a million really good records over the years. Uh, reads the fly shit off the page. You know, he's just one of those guys that's a really great musician, and, and his his grooves and my grooves seem to fit together really like gloves. So, especially me is like the first one I wrote with him. I got two more songs of his, of his songs on the record. One's called. Uh, Losing ground. It's a little political in a little sort of way. Another one's called uh, uh, "The Truth Has Begun," which is once again that theme about truth. But especially me, you like it. It's just funky. Outstanding. <laughs> it's just a, it make you want to dance. Yeah. Outstanding. Hey Bruce, thanks for doing this, man. It's great talking to you. It seems uh, like you and your uh, your audience got a good good groove going. You. It's not about hey man, what's it like being a rock star? No, 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 don't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a rock star. I'm a musician. <laughs> <laughs> too many people are, I should say, too many hosts are asking too many guests those questions, and I pride myself on not asking the predictable questions. But but thank you for the compliment, though. Yeah, you allow it to go to some pretty cool places. You you allow the interview to go to, to go to some places that mean something, which is great. That thing's wonderful. And I just get out of the way. I, I allow it to go where where it's meant to go and where it needs to go. 
Bill, it's been a thrill. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you making time to be on Now Here This Entertainment. Thank you so much. Great, man. Uh, I'll talk to you soon. Be good. With that, I will wrap up the eight-year anniversary episode of Now Hear This Entertainment. My sincere thanks to singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and two-time Grammy winner Bill Champlin. Do visit his official website at BillChamplin.com. Again, I will put a link to it on the show page for this episode at NHTE.net. Lots to see once you land on his website, including a shop link where you can purchase not only the album Bill put out last year, but other CDs and other merchandise. Engage with Bill on social media, too. On his website, you will find links for Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. I followed him this morning on Facebook and Twitter, and I'm sure he would appreciate you doing the same. For that matter, tell Bill you heard him and his music. I now hear this entertainment. Keep up with Bill online so you can see where and when you can go see him perform live. While I strongly encourage you to purchase physical units from BillChamplin.com, I'm talking about CDs, his music is also streaming on the usual digital platforms such as Apple Music and Spotify, the latter which I mentioned earlier having close to 65,000 monthly listeners. A reminder, by the way, about the giveaway that I mentioned earlier. This is running throughout the month of February, meaning that it will end at midnight Eastern time on February 28th. Once the clock turns over to March 1st, you will have missed out. I am going to give one person access to my online class at interviewtipscourse.com absolutely free. Again, the way to enter to win is by sending an email to podcast at nhte.net and telling me who you are, what you do, and why the course would be helpful to you. Don't write a novel. There's no panel of judges looking at what's the most heartfelt entry, but you need to include that information so I know that this is really something you want because it's going to help you professionally. Don't just send a blank email or a message that says, hey, or pick me. Nope, you're not going to be eligible. I will do a random drawing from all qualified entries, and one winner will be given access to interviewtipscourse.com absolutely free. Send your entry via email, as I described, to podcast at nhte.net. And that will do it for the 8th Anniversary Show, Episode 419. Thank you so, so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. I'll send you out today with another song from Bill Champlin. This is the one he just talked about. It's called Especially Me. I wanted to tell you what you, what you already know. Here comes that same old overused friend. I told you so. How'd you do what you did when you did it? When every one of your friends said to So